You're listening to The Lit Review, a podcast where organizers interview organizers about books. In this moment of urgency, mass political education is key. We recognize that political study is not always accessible for a variety of reasons. Our goal with The Lit Review is to be a resource that brings out key information from relevant books to the masses. Think SparkNotes in podcast form. I'm one of your hosts, Paige May, and thank you for listening to The Lit Review. Paige here. Welcome to The Lit Review. Today we're going to be talking with our two guests, Debbie and Nathan, about a book I have heard little about, to be honest, other than that I need to read it and that it is very long, and it is called Black Reconstruction in America, 1860 to 1880. So hey, Debbie and Nathan, can you introduce yourselves for us? Hi, I'm, uh, I'm Nathan. Um, thank you so much for, for having me here. I am so excited to be talking about this book and especially excited to be talking about it with, uh, with you all. Awesome. Uh, hey, I'm Debbie. I uh, work at the American Friends Service Committee, have thrown down with a few of you for a while trying to challenge police violence in the city uh, and other forms of state violence. And Nathan and I actually work in the same office mm-hmm. and for the past like Almost a year when we catch each other in the hallways, we geek out about this book because, as you notice, it's kind of long. Not that many people actually read it. Um, I only did it because Miriam Kaba assigned it two years ago, and then it took me six months to finish, nine months after she assigned it, Uh, and it was really helpful to, like, find out that Nathan, like, not only has read the book, but also like really studied the time period, mm-hmm. and is also just like an awesome thinker and strategist. So I was like, "Yes, help me make sense of this." This is a big book. Sounds like one, two, three. It's a lot of pages. It's like what, not eight hundred, seven hundred pages. Uh, what is this book about? Um, all right, so yeah, um, this is a book um, really detailing. Um, the, the, the focus of it was on the role that black people played in Reconstruction, and it, it really, I think, just overall gives a really good historical picture of just Reconstruction generally. Um, it was uh, written in the, in the middle of the 1930s, um, so, you know, kind of almost immediately after Reconstruction, there was um, a lot of kind of propaganda and, um, you know, fight over, like, you know, what the Civil War meant, what Reconstruction meant. Um, uh, W.B. Du Bois, um, really, like, this is probably one of the, you know, most detailed scholarly descriptions of, of, uh, of Reconstruction, and so I think it's, uh, really excited to be talking about it. Um, and when I, just to add to that, uh, when I picked it up, I don't know if I could honestly say I knew what Reconstruction was. Uh, very quickly, what, I was like, what, what is Reconstruction? Yeah, it was the period after the Civil War. Okay. So this huge, massive crisis, crisis social upheaval just happened where, like, I mean, like, you, we can't even imagine. Social change, like, we can't even imagine. A civil War, like, four million previously enslaved black folks are no longer, quote-unquote, enslaved. And the whole country has to kind of, like, shift and figure out how power is going to be uh, laid out in the next period. And so that period is Reconstruction. I think it's really important in part because it was like, it could have been so much. You know, we know that the time periods after crisis are when change happens. Um, 
And so that was helpful to just learn, oh, this is what it was. And the book also deals with the Civil War and gives a perspective of the Civil War that I think we don't learn in regular history classes. That's really important. Um, and then, like Nathan pointed out, this is written in the 1930s. And when Du Bois wrote it, it was during segregation. The only other texts that legitimately like existed about Reconstruction all said it was a failure. Mm. Black people with political power was a failure mm. and it didn't work. They were, they were almost all written by overt white supremacists. Mm -hmm. And here's this, this black guy who's like, you know what, screw you. I'm going to write a different history. I'm going to go into these libraries you don't want me to go into. I'm going to access these historical records you don't want me to access. And I'm going to write a text that completely throws that on its head and says, you know what? There may have been some massive failures and there were some pretty fucking incredible things that did happen and we have to recognize those. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the amazingly different conclusions when you assume that, that black people are, are equal um, and not racially inferior to white people, um, you, you get a very different history when you write from that perspective. Um, and you really, really brought that to the table. Um, you know, which is, you know, so much happened during Reconstruction. It, it is really amazing to me that, um, you know, we don't learn more about it in school. So, you know, from Reconstruction period, you get the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. It's, it sets the relationship for, you know, what is the state's relationship to the federal government? Um, you know, who has power in, in our federal government? Um, and, you know, so much of really like the underpinnings of our political system are, are set up during this time. This book really, uh, it's, it's graphic. It's really hard to read a lot of it. It describes massacres. It describes slavery in detail. It describes the actions of the Ku Klux Klan not as like this sort of ethereal thing out there that we know they exist and do bad things, but it explains the ways that they used force and graphic brute violence en masse to disenfranchise. So that, that was a political project. There's this chapter called The Counter-Revolution of Property, which basically talks about how uh, the corporate elite, especially in the North, just like use this period to just ransack. You know, they were they were expanding the railroads during this period of time, and that just became such a like disgusting project that basically filled the pockets of people who were you know the same that we see now with sort of corporate subsidies and stuff. Oh, and they're talking about people in elected office from the North and how they literally they're just selling seats. You know, they're just, they're selling seats. The judge was, was, was bought. The senator was bought. This person's bought. That person's bought. The, the president's secretary was bought. Like it's well known. And we know that stays with us today, mm -hmm. but this is happening at this period of mass social transformation. Right. So mm -hmm. it's like, oh, this could have gone really differently. And then one other piece in terms of just like mm -hmm. fucking capitalists ruining everything was they established a bank for the freedmen. Like it was like the, the freedmen's bank. And like, Within a couple years, it was incredible. Like, historically enslaved black folks who just now, for the first time in their lives, are getting any kind of wages, are being told to invest in this bank. And within two years, I think it's two years, it might have been three, I don't know, but very little amount of time, all of these other northern capitalists realized that they could, instead of letting the investments be in like state bonds, they were like, ooh, let's, let's 
let's, you know, I don't get investments, but they were like, let's somehow <laughs> invest this money in more risky stuff. Uh, so suddenly all that money became meaningless. Again, hmm. this makes sense. We've, we've seen this happen, yeah. right? Finance capitalism and ca casino capitalism. But, uh, and within two years, it just went broke. It was over and they paid back less than 30% of what had been invested okay. in it. And there was probably, I think it was like $46 million that previously enslaved black folks had invested into this bank now, and they see none of it, and there's no, there's no apology, there's no reason why this happened. It just happened. So it's like, you wonder, we wonder why. Mm -hmm. Like, we, there's distrust of finance, financial institutions in this country. Right. The only bank black people could use just went, never mind, we're gonna stop existing, and all that money's gone without anything said. Yeah. Uh, like the, the, the you know, uh, you know the era is sometimes called like the Gilded Age. You know, it is very much so known for its corruption. I um, mean, I think you know partly it, it's difficult because somewhat like that's um, like was used as like the narrative of like why uh, you couldn't put black people in charge of mm -hmm. charge of anything, um, or you know calling it um, you know you know taught, uh, teaching in schools about carpet baggers. Um, and, you know, that was very much so, like, the narrative that the, that the KKK used was that they were, you know, defending themselves against these uh, corrupt uh, government officials. So is this a book about sort of, like, the truth of why, why Reconstruction failed? I think this is, this is countering some of the, the narrative that was out there. Um, so, you know, by, by the time he's writing this book, you know, um, uh, movies like Birth of a Nation yeah. have already, you know, premiered on the White House lawn under the Woodrow Wilson administration. Um, and it's, you know, very much so it's already become, you know, part of the, the public narrative. Um, often um, it, what was used a lot was uh, pointing to Haiti as well mm -hmm. um, and kind of like this white narrative that black people cannot govern themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and really, you know, Du Bois takes like a much different angle on it and really talks about like the betrayal of one, the, the core values of the, of the United States and just like how the United States has betrayed itself and then also the, the betrayal of, of black people um, in the United States and how that has, you know, led to the detriment not only of black people, um, but really, you know, the, the, this is the rise of industry and its control, mm -hmm. you know, so over so much of, uh, you know, of the government and really the, the power, like the 14th Amendment is also the amendment that is used to justify that corporations are people. Um, mm -hmm. And so, so much of, uh, you know, I, there, there's a quote that um, I, I really um, enjoy of, of Du Bois. It also gets a little bit of his his writing style in which he says, Northern industry, quote, murdered democracy in the United States so completely that the world does not recognize its corpse. Dang. Wait, can you say that again? Northern industry, quote, murdered democracy in the United States so completely that the world does not recognize its corpse. Okay. What do you hear in that? <laughs> or like, well, okay, so why why did you write down that quote? Because um, I think it, it, it really, um, I think it, it really shows like how, like his history is like he's, um, you know, this is uh, he also like wrote prose and it's just, like he has like a very poetic writing style, but it's also um, I think really gets to some of the core ideas that he's trying to explain um, in the book is that you know this is the selling out of democracy is mm -hmm. what you see with like the failure of reconstruction mm -hmm. um, you know this was an attempt to uh, you know live up to the to the values that the United States has exposed for so many years um, you know and, and you know continue to 
Um, you know, during so this is written in 1935. You know, the U.S. has you know just gone into uh, you know this is post World War One, in which the U.S. fought a war for you know freedom and democracy, as you know the United States would continue to do or you know continues to do. Um, talking about freedom and democracy, he is really pointing to like the some of the hypocrisy of that and how um, you know at its core the United States you know from this time period really betrayed democracy. I mean, even before that time yeah, period. Yeah, yes, but yeah. But especially yes. in that time period. <laughs> yes, especially, mm -hmm. yes, um, yes, sorry. And I, I think the other sort of, like, theme, I don't know what this is relating to, but something I just wanted to talk about all of a sudden, mm -hmm. was that, I mean, Du Bois is like, I don't know if I'm saying his name right, but Du Bois is like... Yeah, it, is it Du Bois or Du Bois? Um, so, like, <laughs> Real I, I, I took French in high school, and okay. like, it's so hard for me not to say Du Bois, because that's just, like, how I read it. Right. Um, but I, I think... It, more commonly Du Bois, um, but okay. I may I slip up. I don't even say the S. Yeah. I, mix, I mix them both up and I say Du Bois. Yeah. <laughs> okay. 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 So, okay. But like Nathan was saying, right, Du Bois, Du Bois, I'm going to say it, I'm going to say it. Du Bois is, um, his prose is intense. Like, mm. uh, if you just want to get a sense of how he writes and then maybe get like, the passion with which he wrote this book, just read the last chapter. Mm. It's called The Propaganda of History. Mm. Tells you something oh. about what he has to mm -hmm. say, okay. right? And he and from the get-go, too, he talks about how if you are going to engage in a, in a study of Reconstruction, you're going to study a history of lies. Like, you're going you're gonna, to... Basically, what he's trying to do is unveil these lies, but all that's been written is lies. I mean, he shares in this last chapter that... The editors of the 14th edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica asked him for an article on the history of black folks in America, and they cut out all references to Reconstruction. Hmm. So, like, this history was not allowed to be told, and then he told it. Um, and so to your question of, like, sort of what is he trying to do with it, I think he is, he's showing black agency while also showing the ways that, like, it was undercut. Right. left and right by northern capitalists, by sort of white racial terror, by um, propagandists after the fact, um, and really lays out the case for also what were the gains made during this time period. What are some of the gains that are made, or what, what is some of the momentum of, of, of like black people in this time period? Um, I think one of the things that um, was really shocking to me kind of when, when reading the book um you know even having had like you know read some some other history about this era was just like how much um uh, you know both the the southern government or so the confederacy and the federal government did not account for black people mm -hmm. when they were one planning mm -hmm. for the civil war and conducting the civil war mm -hmm. um you know four million people that, that um you know the so, so like you know, people have gone back and you know and try to figure out you know what was Lincoln's plan, what was what was what was he going to do with the the freed slaves, and you know I think there's you know a strong argument for you know you know he was kind of you know at the end looking at a deportation policy, but generally like not much of a plan at all, not much of a not much thinking done to it. Like the impracticality of deportation was already like very clear as the Civil War was progressing, yet they continued to like view that as the solution without you know. <laughs> You know, even though it was, you know, completely detached from reality. And what forced, really, like, the intervention that was made was, was made by black people. Um, and I think one of, one of his really powerful chapters is actually called the, the General Strike. And I think he has, like, a very, like, beautiful way of talking about 
um, you know, black resistance of withholding labor, um, you know, which really was like, uh, like a, a um, you know, at, at the crux of the, the Southern strategy was that, you know, they don't have as much people as the, as the North does. They, um, but their plan was that they can leave the slaves back at home and that will continue to produce the food and have the economy and so they can field a larger army. Oh. Um, and so, you know, so, but, you know, quickly as the, as the war started and the Northern armies, you know, started to enter the South, they, they had, you know, black people showing up at their camps. Um, and there, there wasn't a plan of what, what to do with them. Um, you know, so I think, you know, originally, um, you know, one of the really atrocious things you read about is how, you know, often they were handed back by the white officers to the, to the slave owners. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and it was kind of some... Wait, northern? They would show up to northern... Northern camps. Camps to fight against the South. Uh -huh. And the North was like, nah... Yeah. Go back to the plantation. We gonna fight to end slavery, but yeah. we don't need you. Yeah. Well, yeah. That, I, yeah. Okay. That's the thing. Yeah. Is that's the other lie we're told is that the Civil War was about ending slavery. Mm -hmm. It was not. Mm -hmm. That is not why the North went to war with the South. Yeah, they were. They were. They really didn't want that perception at all. So, um, uh, song John Brown's body, um, you know, which would later be, you know, used as a war song in Union camps, was originally banned, um, in mm -hmm. the Union lines. Mm -hmm. Because they wanted to be, um, you know, really clear that, you know, this is not about um, slavery. This is not about, as, as they would call it, confiscating Southern property. Um, you know, this is about one, you know, because a lot of the, the political fights leading up to the Civil War are about the, the interests of, of the North and the interests of the West in trying to contain slavery. Mm -hmm. um, because of, you know, the, its competition it would create with white workers. Um, and so they were fine with slavery existing as long as it didn't move into these new Western states because they wanted to divide those up and, you know, give them to, um, to white homesteaders. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and so, and so they, you know, they, they did not want um, it to be a war about slavery because, you know, their, their hope was that, you know, they would fight this war, um, the South would lose and everything would go on as normal um, and they, you know, the slavery could continue um, you know, in the South, um, and that they just wouldn't be able to expand it into the, into the West was really the original kind of, you know, it was not very aspirational um, <laughs> at, the, at the start of the Civil War. Um, but, you know, after you have so much death, and you, then you really saw kind of the North kind of, um, you know, gr groping for some kind of moral high ground in the war. Um, and because of, you know, the political position of, of the abolitionists and their, their continued efforts to say that, the Civil War, for any of this to mean anything, um, it needs to end with um, with emancipation. Mm -hmm. You know, anything else is a failure, um, and it is not not worth it. And so, you know, it, it eventually did become more, much more about slavery, but the the origins of the war, you know, very much so more based in in economics. There's actually there was a there was a video that went around. Um, I forget who actually produced it, but it was like one of uh, like a progressive kind of. Facebook video that was made and you know in essence it was like them interviewing southern people about you know what the civil war was about yeah. um, and then kind of like making fun of them being uh, you know and there was like a bunch of folks saying like oh like I thought it was about trade policy and they'd be like ha 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 silly southerner it was about slavery um, but actually you know trade policy was actually like more relevant. Yeah, yeah. More relevant. <laughs> you know but that, that trade policy was of course like informed because of slavery and you know mm -hmm. the the economic needs of the south and why they diverged from the economic needs of the north was because of slavery um, but the, it, it wasn't about like the north wanted to eliminate slavery in the south and it's just to add to that quickly on that note it's really interesting right like the civil war started in 61 went till 65 Emancipation Proclamation didn't happen until 63. 
that's when Lincoln realized, oh shit, like all these enslaved black folks are actually an asset to us. One, because they are gonna fight with us and have just like upped our capacity to like have a bigger army. And two, because they've withdrawn all this labor from the South. Okay, so in the in this moment then, I, I guess I'm, I'm looking for a clarification on what is the potential of Reconstruction. I, mean, I think one of the things Nathan already pointed out is uh, this book gives us a more realistic picture of what happened during the Civil War and shows that black folks freed themselves. <laughs> it wasn't benevolent ab white abolitionists in the North or just the fact that the North beat the South. It was when black folks took their power and armed themselves that, and, that they managed to defeat um, the South. But um, I think another thing is public education. Did you already talk about this? Yeah, we did a little bit, a little this. bit, but it, it deserves, deserves so the, <laughs> the, the entire institution of public education, like there wasn't, there weren't schools for black children and they started, I mean, black communities themselves started building public schools, financing them themselves because the government wasn't paying for it during this time period because the gov was a hot mess. And uh, they actually never even said that white students couldn't attend. Governments started noticing that these schools were successful, so they start funding them. And then only after the, these schools had become something that were clearly effective and valuable, and the state had started investing in them, did white families, especially poor white families who before hadn't had education for their kids, started saying, oh, we want white-only schools. So public education, was in large part an institution developed by black people for everybody that then got flipped. And I think the narrative around education and the history of education is always one of like desegregation. Mm -hmm. That's all we hear about is mm -hmm. like, they were trying to get black kids in white schools. And you're like, right. fools. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, where did those schools even start? Right. Um, and uh, I don't know. I think that piece is really, really important and profound and it only comes in at the end of the book but it's like this this massive accomplishment is this is this a period that's chaotic as it sounds like this is a moment where you just have like all these suddenly like free black people who can vote like all these people and does it also end that all white people who don't have property can vote that happens as well right so that and the government is also now having to manage all these things it didn't have to manage before because now it said there's federal versus state i mean i think at this time you see so many different really experiments um, and a lot of that is because there is not a clear direction on the federal government about mm -hmm. what they are going to do um, with free black people. And you have, you know, uh, like Debbie said, you know, black people organizing themselves. You also have, you know, a lot of the, the generals, you know, a lot of this, a lot of this time period is really driven by military rules. So in the, like the occupied South, there is not civilian governments yet. So it, you know, varies greatly between like who is the general at the time. Um, so, you know, you, for example, you have like a, you know, um, Sherman and the divvying out of you know forty acre lots on the um, Sea Islands in North or South Carolina. In South Carolina, oh, crap, I don't, I don't know. I don't remember exactly. That's North or South Carolina. Um, in the Carolinas, um, you know, you know, forty acre lots in the Sea Islands. Um, you know, and different economic models. Um, you really have a discussion among black people about what does freedom mean. Mm. Um, I think that you see, you know, in the a lot of people looked at the North, looked at the wage labor system and said, that is not freedom. Mm -hmm. um, you know, freedom is, you know, me being able to have a farm, grow what I want, and nobody be able to tell me what to do. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> yeah, and, um, you know, it, you know, for some, for some people, you know, freedom, you know, is uh, a lot of people express it, you know, in the education. Um, 
uh, you know, the development of black colleges, the development of black teachers. Um, as a result of this, you know, working with um, a population that, you know, has laws, um, you know, preventing the education of slaves, you know, working with uh, of the four million, you know, Du Bois, uh, um, du Bois estimates around 95% um, illiteracy and really, you know, this, the, the, the education, just like the, the massiveness of the, of the project and how in different pockets and different states and different times, you know, so a lot of different models were tried and uh, pretty meticulously cataloged in this book. Mm -hmm. okay. Oh, I was just going to say to go along with that, I think, yeah, there's sort of like all these experiments happening and there's so much violence. Mm -hmm. Like the Civil War technically ended, but like it didn't end pleasantly and like, you know, white folks were not happy about the property being confiscated from them and weren't happy that their former free laborers are now walking off the job. And so immediately, and I think we'll come back to this when we talk about sort of how this laid the foundations for policing and prisons and, and Jim Crow as we know it, right? But immediately, black folks are still, you know, like trying to keep, fo I mean, using weapons, using everything in their power to keep folks on their property, to refuse to let black folks govern. I mean, uh, I, I, one of the things I just can't get out of my mind and couldn't shake it in, when the first time I went through these 700 pages was the description of this massacre in New Orleans uh, in 1866. It was a convention that had been called. I mean, a big thing. So after black folks were emancipated, quote unquote, right, um, the, they still didn't have the vote and the right to vote. That didn't come for several years. So some formerly enslaved folks were able to get into office and, and elected office in this time period because in some places they were being allowed to vote, but not in every place. And so this was a huge question. This was a big political question. Like white folks were still not ready to let this happen in the South. And so this is a convention in New Orleans, Louisiana in 1866. So technically the Civil War has supposedly ended. There's still federal troops present. They're going to have a convention around whether or not black people in that state should be enfranchised, and they call for it. Most of the legislators didn't even show up. So it's mostly interested black people who live nearby come to watch it and see what's going to be talked about in the convention hall of the state government at that time. And the mayor gets his head of police chief. The mayor happens to be a member of like the White Knights. Gets, gets all of the police to put on their white handkerchiefs, and they go out and they massacre everyone in that hall. They chase people down the streets and kill them. Like, no white people were killed, only the black people observing and a few black states people who had been ordered. But that's commonplace in this period, right? And I hate to describe the story because it's like terrifying and bone chilling. You're like, wait, the, wait, what? Like, imagine somebody walking into the state legislature, shooting people up and following them down the street. Like, that's the kind of open violence that's happening all over the South constantly and yet at the same time black folks are still being like nah fuck you we're gonna govern and we're gonna do this and we're, we're gonna do this mm -hmm. um so yeah it was chaos it was mass chaos and and the book really outlines in different states what the stakes were so mm -hmm. what was the situation like in the carolinas versus in florida okay. versus in georgia versus in texas that's what the middle 300 or so pages are <laughs> and that's why i tell my friends that it's like 
19th century C-SPAN, because mm-hmm. he, he'll, he'll go, and he'll be like, I'm never going to remember what happened in, in Alabama in 1871. Mm-hmm. Um, but it still paints this picture of like, yeah, this was not like a pretty time period. And again, could have been different, but yeah. it's important to actually name how massively violent this was. Yeah, yeah, we're talking about like hundreds of political assassinations a year, you know, and, and that's, you know, not just counting the massacre, that's like hundreds of political assassinations of, you know, state legislators, um, congressmen, um, you know, sheriffs, you know, competing sheriffs, competing city governments, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that they would assassinate um, and, and murder and... Um, black ones. Yeah, 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 black ones and white ones um, okay. as well, like if, uh, it, particularly like if there was... Um, you know, uh, there was, you know, examples of a couple former plantation owners that would try and work with their, mm-hmm. uh, their freed slaves, sometimes um, with a profit margin of like trying to sell them the equipment to start up a, um, like their own kind of small farm. Um, and those people were also um, uh, targeted for, for violence and execution. Um, at one point, it'd be remiss if we, if we didn't talk about this um, when, when you had talked about emancipation. Um, and I think a little bit at, at, at the beginning, Du Bois talks about this, but um, you know, what emancipation meant for black women. Um, mm-hmm. And in a lot of these areas, it's not so much like the, the freedom of black women, but the transfer of ownership um, from the uh, plantation mm-hmm. owner right. to, the, to the black male, you know, in the form of, you know, once marriage is legalized, like the, banks, the bank, banking system that the Freedmen Bureau set up um, was, large, was denied to, to black women. Mm-hmm. Um, although they, from what I've been reading recently, there seems to be some, some reports about you know, it not being the case universally, but generally, legally, um, black women weren't supposed to be able to have bank accounts. Um, right, and they can't vote at this time. Yeah, yeah, So all the, the gains that have been made, right, what you're saying, right? Yeah. This is really an era, an experimentation of black freedom for black men. Correct. Right, that, Correct. and that's what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm tr- which way do we go? Uh, so, what... We have, okay, yes, can you talk a little bit about how you go from, from the potential, right, for at least for black men, right, um, to be able to engage in the, po- the politics of the, the USA, right? But then what, what does, is it, it's the northern capitalist, it's this racial terror, right? It, are there other agents involved mm-hmm. that bring that, that moment of potential to what then becomes like this mass lynching era and, and into Jim Crow? And, and can you talk about how that happened? One of the, the big kind of balancing acts, you know, in so much of the positioning prior to the Civil War, um, as well as kind of the immediate aftermath of it, is really about the West, um, and particularly like uh, uh, immigrant populations moving to the West, and you know, who, who is going to own those electoral votes? Um, and so, you know, the interests of the, the West definitely deferred from like the interest of, say, uh, you know, the, the former white planting class in the South, you know, versus industrialists in the North, um, a lot of the, um, you know, the, the Western homesteaders, you know, looked at the, the factory wage system of like the North and did not, did not see that as something that they wanted. Um, but in the end, um, or, you know, one of the, the biggest uh, factors and how this all sh- shook out politically was that the, the West sided um, with, the, with the industrialists and with the former planters against the, the free blacks. Um, because they did not want um, free blacks moving to the West, free blacks becoming part of the political system um, there. I I think another piece is, uh, uh, I mean, uh, I just got frazzled. Um, (laughs) I I think we've been talking about white racial terror and we've been, 
just talking about white people writ large, and I think it's really interesting that even Du Bois makes the distinction between what the white workers and the white ruling class, or the white planters in the South. Um, which is interesting, because I think there's a lot of ways now that mm -hmm. this sort of mythology of the white working class as right. being the only sector of white people that's racist is like totally wrong and messed mm -hmm. up, right? right? Um, and uh, part of, I think, what he does, he uh, he's honestly like kind of generous mm -hmm. to, to the planting class in talking about how like part of why the counter-revolution became so intense was because their in animosity and the enormity of what they lost during the Civil War was never actually reconciled. Mm. Like, imagine all this shit taken from you, and then it's all in your face all the time, and the end, right? Plus the presence of federal troops, many of whom are armed black folks, enforcing this. Um, and so, like, I read this, started reading this right after I had written The Souls of Black Folks, and so, like, reading about uh, that time period and just sort of, like, Ooh, there's there's almost like this way that that I had never recognized how much like there's an element of power that's embedded in emotions and collective emotions mm. that's like really terrifying and nasty that I think became harnessed and then additionally like the white workers right of course picked the wrong team to align themselves with and there's material reasons why they did that um but why was I saying all this? I was saying all this to say it was when the poor whites joined with the planters that they really just in, in completely like redid the South. Not to say they ever weren't aligned, right? Right. Um, I think uh, part, of, part of the reason I, just, I didn't put this book down when I picked it up is because page, like right off the get-go, page 10 or 12 or something, um, he says the system, page 12, he says the system of slavery demanded a special police force and such a force was made possible and unusually effective by the presence of the poor whites. So from the get-go he's saying slavery was only possible because white people were willing to be police. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right? So, okay, I'm in. You got me. As someone interested in the history of policing in this country, you got me. Yeah. Um, and then he goes on to say, uh, it's on a note, sorry, I'm sorry, um, that uh, there were actually more white people to police the slaves than there were slaves. So, so slavery gave poor white people a reason to exist, right? There's not just, like, you know, there's a financial investment mm -hmm. and reason to do this, and what George Lipsis likes to call the possessive investment in whiteness. So there's actually, like, the benefits of just not being a slave right. in this moment are codified and made real. And then he, oh man, this phrase just gets me. He says, gradually the whole white South became an armed and commissioned camp to keep black folks in slavery and to kill the black rebel. So to me, that's also really powerful because he's not just saying to keep slavery in place, but to right. kill the black right. rebel, which, is which also speaks to me about the point of police. The point of police right. is yes, to keep the oppressed down, to enforce the status quo, protect enforce property. power, protect property, all of that, and to shut down the possibility for resistance. Right. Um, which is another reason why I'm like so scared going into the political moment that we're going into when um, there's some... Yeah, anyways. Uh, yeah, so that's, that's another reason. I, I think it, I really liked 
um, the way he kind of talked about class and how it operates in the United States. Um, I think he makes some really strong comparisons, you know, with, with Europe. So a, a lot of the, the Confederacy hopes were baking on a European intervention. It's really, you know, that was the only way that they would really ever manage to defeat um, Northern industry. And so to put pressure on Europe, they had done a cotton boycott in which they were not shipping cotton to Europe, which was shutting down um, numerous um, textile uh, factories in uh, like England, for example. Um, and yet you consistently saw it like in a lot of like the English working class, a strong solidarity um, and support of abolition, um, despite the economic hardships that they were enduring. Um, well, in the United States, um, you, <laughs> you did not see that. Um, and one of the observations that he makes is that really, you know, this is about kind of this, um, this story of class mobility that the United States tells itself. Um, so in Europe, you know, you, you believe that if you're a factory worker, your, child, your children are going to be factory workers. So you really care what factory workers make. Um, but if you are a factory worker and don't believe that one, you will be a factory worker for the rest of your life or that your kids will be, you don't care as much about what a factory work, worker makes, even if you're a factory worker at the time. They kind of like, well, I'm down here, but I won't be down here for long, um, which is really able to be sold both to um, northern white workers as well as to um, small landholders in the West. Another reason that like Reconstruction as an experiment was like shut down, right, was because the federal troops left. Mm -hmm. So the, I was recently trying to flip through the book again, being like, yeah, I can have a refresher by flipping <laughs> for a half hour before we talk. <laughs> and one of the things I saw and remembered was, oh yeah, they keep referring to this date of 1876. And what happened in 1876 was basically, uh, it, was, it was pretty much when black reconstruction was kind of like given up on. Like the North convinced the South to like, align with it again and basically if, if you would you know saying to the south hey if you help us elect our guy as president we'll withdraw all the federal troops nathan just explained this to me but what that meant was like during black reconstruction the only reason that like any black folks were allowed to be in government was because there were armed troops there was a military occupation making this possible remember there's all these murders going on in florida in one year in 1871 2000 no in one month 2000 people were murdered like, there's just like, don't even get me started on Texas. Seriously. <laughs> that chapter is like its own beast. But, um, but so when the federal troops left, that was like, it was like, the, it created this. I mean, can you imagine how terrifying that would be to be like, oh, the only people moderately protect, oh, oh, they're gone. Mm -hmm. um, and at that same time, sort of the, 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 literally the white terrorist organizations of the Ku Klux Klan and the White Knights and other organizations that had been more underground and had been developing came out in the open and were like, ha, we're here. So I think that's a lot of the sort of like the start of this reign of racial terror and, and a straight up police state that lasts well into the 1950s. In the 1930s, you start to see more black organizations that, that are, are bumping into that. Where the troops are moved to, so they, they take um, both the, uh, a lot of the bl black troops and the, and the white troops, federal troops in the south, and they send them to the west um, to fight the indigenous people there to mm -hmm. claim more land for white farmers. Hmm. Um, and so I think that that's, that's important to, to, I think, know like what, what they mm -hmm. were being used for, you know, so Buffalo soldiers, you know, mm -hmm. all, the, all of that. So you've named, you have the Northern capitalists, racial, racial terrorism, 
Uh, you have the removal of federal troops. And this other point that you've raised around the role of the sort of, what is it, deputization is when you turn white people into police, right? Like the, uh, the deputization or the, the, the construction of, of the police state as we know it is all happening in this era to really limit the potential of reconstruction. So can you say more? I think the police is what really catches my ear for, for maybe obvious reasons for folks who know what I do. But can you say more about what happened with police? Yeah. I mean... Just to be clear, the deputization of white people happened before this time period, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. During slavery, there were white patrols of people making sure that people who were enslaved didn't escape, and they would bring them back and get rewards. Um, <clears throat> what happened right after the Civil War, like so immediately it's ridiculous. I think by now a lot of people are familiar with the 13th Amendment mm -hmm. and the way that it was emancipation except as punishment for a crime, right? Angela Davis really helped us like get that part. Um, and the, the reason the accept as punishment for a crime was so successful in continuing to, in effect, uh, re-enslave so many black people was because of what was immediately passed after the end of the Civil War were the black codes. Mm -hmm. So we remember, hopefully, that there were already slave codes that were passed, um, mostly a, a number of them in sort of like the early colonies right after the uh, Bacon's Rebellion. And it was like, oh no, we can't have working class interests align. Let's make sure to separate white mm -hmm. and black. I mean, that's if you, if you totally buy the idea that this has only ever been a wedge. Right. Yes, race has been a wedge and there's, and there's more, there's right. more. Um, but the black codes criminalize everything. I mean, he goes into it. I've, like, assigned people this reading before. I'm not a teacher, but I'm like, read these ten pages. Page 166 in the chapter Looking Backward. I just love the titles of his chapters. He's like, let me make side this clear. Note. Yeah. Side note. I love the titles of his chapters. And the other side note is he starts every chapter with a little one-paragraph description of his chapter. Yeah. Oh, that's very nice. Okay. He's like, here's my own cliff yeah. notes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's about ten pages where he just walks you through what the black codes actually consisted of, it was illegal not to have employment. You had to have a contract that was signed by a white person. It was illegal to quit your job. It was illegal to have a gun. It was illegal to do so many things. And if a white person like found someone who had walked off their job, they could return them and then they'd get you know, a reward for that. There's, there's so much. I mean, I was also looking at this. One of the black codes in Mississippi said that uh, if, if a white person found an armed black person that didn't have a court order to have a gun or whatever, and they weren't a soldier, they, if they turned them in, the gun would be forfeited to the informer. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so there's like, from the get-go, not only are, like, behaviors criminalized, but states of being. So if you are not a wage laborer right. under the employment of a white person, right, mm -hmm. you're going to be going to jail. And then once you go to jail, right, does, it, does anybody know what's the next part? Tell us, Debbie. <laughs> I think it rhymes with... Convict e scene. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we got it. The convict lease system. I mean, I just I think it's like really important to talk about these all together and like mm -hmm. to just recognize that this happened in this period. So parallel to the first time in history 
when black people are taking office in this country and are rewriting laws. Parallel to that, black folks who are refusing to work in the way they're being told to work and basically re-enslave themselves are being sent to jail to then be sold to the highest bidder right. to do work. Right. So it's like, <laughs> what? What? Yeah, and just like the, the, the problem, so then, you know, you can't, have your own farm. You can't, um, you know, have your own subsistence farm and like have, um, you know, your own kind of like economy. Um, and you know, and then so you know, these laws were like, um, cause they like the vagrancy laws. So if you're not employed by a white person, you're a vagrant. Um, and you know, cause the you know accusation that you know black people are lazy, and if you don't pass these laws, they're not going to work. Um, was the the fear and justification they were, they were using for a lot of these state laws? So really, just you know, tying into uh, some racism. Mm, okay. Can you say a little bit more about Du Bois? Like, why? What, what's his story? Again, this is this is a very specific book. Yeah. And uh, did he live through this? Or um, so. Lost the, lost the page. Uh, sorry. <laughs> I had it up. I was like going to be so ready. Um, so yeah, he was born. Uh, uh, w. B. Du Bois was born in uh, eighteen sixty-eight. Um, so he was born during the during the Reconstruction era. He. Um, lived through um, the the aftermath of the the end of Reconstruction. Um, you know his his upbringing. He was um, raised in the, in the Northeast um, to a, to a somewhat prominent family. Um, and then when he went to college in the South and really experienced kind of the the harshness of the of the color line, um, really kind of devoted himself in a lot of his writing um, and so much so much writing, so much research. Um, to the really the destruction of, of the color line um, in the U.S. and then I think you know later in his career more globally. Um, so after writing Black Reconstruction, um, you know other things that he did, um, you know helped found the NAACP. Um, he helped put together some of the first um, uh, uh, international coalitions of African countries to work against Western imperialism. Um, later in his life, he would um, join the, the Communist Party. Um, so there are monuments to him both in the United States and in Russia. He's one of the, the few people that has that going on. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, uh, later in life, he would, he would move to Ghana um, and kind of disavow the United States. And, um, and even after he died in, uh, in his will, he said that he did not want his body uh, to ever visit the United States again until after the color line. Um, is destroyed. So he is still um, interred in, in Ghana. Um, you know, and I think, you know, because of his later association with the, um, the Communist Party, there's been a, a reluctance to embrace him um, among um, some black institutions, especially, you know, during the, during the Red Scare. Um, Roy Wilkins um, was very reluctant to announce his death um, during the, um, uh, the, the March on Washington. And right before uh, Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream speech, it was announced to the crowd uh, that W.B. Du Bois had, um, had passed away. Um, Wait, that day? Yes. Oh, wow. Yes, it was actually one of the more memorable moments that was reported afterwards. It was not actually the I Have a, I Have a Dream wow. speech. It was the death of W.B. Du Bois. So earlier, Debbie, you had said this line that I wrote down, right? This, this could have gone differently. And, and that really strikes me because a lot of the times that I, I talk to folks about the moment that we're in, um, I, I hear a kind of sense that th things are inevitable. Things are the way they are because of some kind of natural order. Um, to just, you know, humans are bad or 
This is just how things have always been and how they always will be. But what you're describing is, you know, this this is a moment of potential and choices are made and campaigns are are launched to, to, to make sure that that potential is never realized. Um, and, and so what what then is the lesson for right now? He has so much to say to white people. Mm-hmm. Like, chapter two is the white worker, right? And then chapter three is the planter. He's talking about white people who owned plantations. Uh, later on, he talks about a poor white. So he's talking about Andrew Johnson, the president after Lincoln was assassinated. This guy who I didn't think I ever needed to learn two shits about. But he ended up having so much power. And he was originally this poor white working class guy, labor guy, and he flips. He instantly flips. And he sells out labor. And he sells out black people. And poor white people. And so, like, he's interesting to learn about. And then mm-hmm. there's the the uh, whole thing on back towards slavery and the ways that white people organize, I want to say themselves, but I wasn't there, but white people organize ourselves to conduct this reign of racial terror and take away any power black people had in that moment. And, like, these lessons are super, super important in figuring out how to... How to... Um, uh, understand the opposition in this moment like that mm-hmm. that there is a long long history of not just the right but of organized white supremacy like those are different entities when you think the civil rights act what think what year do you think 64 what 64 19 19 yeah. 1964 or 65 yeah, yeah. Charles Sumner is trying to pass a civil rights act that that ends discrimination in all public settings in 1866. And in 1868, he's reintroducing it all the time, and he keeps losing by one goddamn vote. Are we not supposed to swear? But he keeps losing by one vote, right? And, And what Du Bois points out is like, dudes, you don't win by appealing to morals. Your speech is beautiful. I mean, he puts the whole thing in there. But... You win by a certain amount of, 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 of force, yeah. strategy and force. Um, and, and I think that's what this book sort of honors and recognizes. And it's a failure of the left still to think. I mean, even I notice it and I, and I struggle with it, like in white anti-racist organizing, all we have to do is convince our family, right? right? Yeah, that's an important piece because we're trying to mitigate harm. We want to reduce harm. harm. And... And how do we build enough power to take power away from and have more power than the other side? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that's a reason I think we have to pay attention to this right now. Because the kind of violence that's, that's happening in this period is coming back. Obviously, right. there's still been violence. Right. And like we've seen in Chicago in the three weeks since Trump was elected, black people killed by police went up more than a thousand percent. That's not by chance. It's Black Reconstruction in America, 1860 to 1880 by W.E.B. Du Bois. Thank you to our guests, Nathan and Debbie. We will be bringing this book back with a special guest, Mariam Kaba, a black woman abolitionist, organizer, teacher, and historian. Thank you for listening to the Lit Review. Keep reading.